and welcome to Conversing with Nature, a podcast of the Nature-Based Exchange. I'm your host, Liz Fly, with the Nature Conservancy in South Carolina. On each episode, I sit down with an expert or enthusiast who talks about their experiences with nature and passes along some of the best practices that nature has taught them over the years. Through these conversations, we rediscover nature and discover ways that we can apply nature's wisdom to the obstacles we currently face in South Carolina and beyond. Today, I'm joined by Alex Butler, Resilience Planning Director for the South Carolina Office of Resilience, or SCORE. In this role, Alex has overseen the development of the state's first statewide risk reduction and resilience plan. Prior to this current role, Alex managed the water quantity permitting section at the Department of Health and Environmental Control, or DHEC, and worked as a hydrologist for both DHEC and the Department of Natural Resources. In his spare time, Alex connects people to watersheds as a whitewater kayak instructor. Alex, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Good morning. So tell me a little bit about your connection with nature. What do you recall as your earliest or fondest memory of nature? Yeah, so I I grew up in uh, rural South Carolina, kind of outside of Charlotte. And and really my first memories of nature are are just kind of wandering around the woods where my parents still live. Used to be a old creek in the back. And I would track that creek kind of from the headwaters all the way down to the uh, larger creek downstream. And, and that's really my first memory of nature is just poking around in that creek, catching crawdads, catching little fish, tadpoles, yeah. that sort of thing. Just yeah. a good time. That's great. And I said it on another um, interview conversation I had with somebody else, but that is so funny that that's the memory so many people have brought up, like just being a kid, going out in my backyard, there were woods back there and spending time. And I think it really speaks to the like, just slowing down and being a kid and not being distracted by a million things and hearing and seeing nature. Like I think a lot of people don't do these days. Well, tell me, has that led to, you know, what you do now? Yeah. Um, you know, I've been thinking about this and I, I think what's interesting is my parents still live at, at that home that I grew mm-hmm. up in, but it's a very different place uh, than it was when I grew up. Charlotte has kind of expanded southward and there's a lot of subdivisions in the area now, a lot of urbanization, urban sprawl has happened. And I was actually out there um, about a month or so ago and and tried to track that same creek back. And um, it's a very different experience. The creek just has a different character. It's not clear anymore. Very few living organisms that I could find in it. It's just kind of been really degraded. Um, and the and the flow characteristics are different as well. It's, it has less water in it than when I remember it as a kid. And I think that has to do a lot with just how the land use has changed. And that really ties into our work here at the Office of Resilience for how we try to think about how all these things impact how water moves across the landscape, especially as it uh, deals with flooding. Oh, that's kind of a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's depressing. You, you can't go home again, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> can't go back, but you know, inspiring to help you with the work you do to try to make things better moving forward. So the Office of Resilience is fairly new. Can you give us an overview of why and how the office was formed and what its mission is? Yeah, the office uh, was formed first as the Disaster Recovery Office um, after the floods of 2015 that that impacted large portions of South Carolina. Governor Haley at the time pulled together a couple of members from each cabinet agency, started the Disaster Recovery Office to really focus on the repair and replacement of homes for low to moderate income folks. And then right as that program was getting going, we were hit again with disasters, Hurricane Matthew, and then Hurricane Florence in 2016 and 2018. By that time, it was Governor McMaster, uh, and he decided that we needed to be uh, more forward-looking in our approach to dealing with these 
flooding events. And, and he formed the South Carolina Floodwater Commission that looked at the flooding issues of South Carolina, uh, developed some recommendations. And one of those recommendations was that there needed to be a standalone state office that really focused in on these kinds of hazards that we're facing. And, and so in 2020, the legislature passed and the governor signed uh, the act that created our office. And, and our mission is really just to, to lessen the impact of disasters on the communities and citizens of South Carolina. And we do that by planning and coordinating statewide resilience, uh, long-term recovery and hazard mitigation. There are other states in the Southeast that have resilience offices. Can you, do, are you familiar with what the differences are, or, you know, what South Carolina maybe stands out um, compared to some of the others? Yeah, it's been interesting uh, as we've gotten this office going and, and reached out to other states and met with other people that are also setting up resilience offices. Um, each state is really doing this differently. And some states are setting up chief resilience officers that exist um, inside of other existing state agencies. Some of them are pairing it with their disaster recovery operations. Some of them are more pairing it with their emergency management divisions. But each state's kind of doing it differently. Uh, and I do think that South Carolina has kind of gotten it right in that we are a standalone office that exists under the governor's office to, you know, to really focus on these things. And I think that that access to the governor's office really gives us the ability to help coordinate the other great efforts that are already ongoing in the state. There are a lot of other agencies and organizations that were already doing a lot of great work statewide. But us being kind of directly involved with the governor's office just kind of allows us to pull it all together in a cleaner picture for the state. Yeah, that makes sense. And kind of that central point and repository almost for resilience work and coordination efforts. I know there were a lot of organizations out there that were really excited about the formation of the Office of Resilience. And there's so many local resilience efforts happening, but having that kind of state focal point and state drive for it has, I think, given a lot of local entities the backing almost to, and framework to be able to do some of the work. So I think that's it's going to be really great moving forward. So resilience is in the name of the office. Um, how does SCORE and presumably the state define resilience? Yeah, you know, that was, that was an interesting thing when I was first hired into this role. It's the first thing I did was, was got a copy of the legislation uh, that created the Office of Resilience and, and directed us to develop a resilience plan. And I went to try to see what, what the definition for resilience was in that legislation, and, and it was missing. <laughs> there was no <laughs> definition for resilience in the enabling legislation. So uh, that was really the first thing we did when we started this planning process was, was sit down and try to define, you know, resilience has a lot of different terms to a lot of different people, and, and it's kind of a buzzword right now. So you, you hear it quite a bit. So we wanted to make sure that we had a clean definition for South Carolina. And, and what we came up with was that uh, resilience is the ability of communities, economies, and ecosystems within South Carolina to anticipate, absorb, recover, and thrive when presented with environmental change and natural hazards. So that's how we define resilience and, and look at it through the planning process. Well, I personally like to hear ecosystems is built into that. Well, they're all intertwined, right? Like, so right. You know, communities and economies are not really going to work if you don't have a functioning ecosystem. So we, we thought yeah. it was important to kind of call out all those individual things in the definition. So you've mentioned this plan. So you released the first strategic resilience and risk reduction plan in June of 2023. So tell us a little bit more about this plan. You know, what went into writing it? Who was involved? What are some of the key recommendations? Yeah, the, the planning process lasted about 18 months. The original deadline for the plan was July 1, 2022, but we were given an extension just based on our, our really short timeline we had. We were given an extension for a year. So really, we, we tried to reach out to all the other existing state agencies, um, nonprofits, you know, organizational groups that, that were already kind of working in this field and, and really trying to pull them together 
to help develop the plan. We had over a hundred different organizations, hundreds of different folks attend planning meetings and uh, subcommittee meetings to talk about specific parts of the plan. And, and Liz, you were involved with some of those. So, you know, we had a very busy meeting schedule yeah. for this process, but really when we took on this planning process, we started off with the idea that we were never going to be able to come to consensus for a hundred percent of the things that resilience touches. So we didn't try, we, we, we didn't go for kind of a consensus driven plan. What, what we mm. did is we, we wanted to get everybody's input and then kind of make the decisions we thought were best for the state. So um, I think that was a little bit different than some of the other planning efforts that are currently happening statewide. And that that was a conscious effort from the beginning that we were just going to try to get as much input as we can to make informed decisions. But the plan, you know, really focuses on looking at what 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 are the current conditions in South Carolina, both from a uh, kind of on the ground standpoint, what does our land use look like? What does our soils look like? Thinking about our hydrological footprint, you know, a lot of the water that flows through the state originates in North Carolina. We share the savannah with Georgia. So thinking about how that water moves across the landscape and how how our modifications to the landscape have impacted how that water moves. Uh, and then thinking about what do our future conditions look like. So looking at population projections for the state, we have a lot of growing areas statewide, uh, especially along the coast, I-85 corridor, Greenville, Spartanburg, and Charlotte. Uh, area for sure. But we also have a lot of areas that are losing population as well, where we have kind of more rural communities, folks are moving to more urbanized areas. Uh, and that has real impacts because those communities are just losing the ability to maintain the infrastructure they have in place and the systems they have in place. So really trying to understand that. And then also looking at what a, what are the future climate conditions look like. We partnered with uh, University of South Carolina and South Carolina Climatology Office and South Carolina Sea Grant to, uh, to take a look at that and really just take a look at what have our historic trends been as far as climate goes, and then what does all this global climate data mean for South Carolina when you when you drill down to it? You know, what, what are we looking for? What are we looking towards in the future? And based on that's how we developed our, our recommendations for the plan. And really they're they're mostly focused on policies that this that we think the state should adopt statewide. It's less about individual projects at this point. It's more about setting the stage for local communities and organizations to, to have success. So most of our recommendations really, really focus in on policies uh, that we think the state should should adopt to to build resilience. Tell me more about the the climate scenarios. I'm just curious, out of this plan, does the state have kind of an adopted future thinking scenarios that we recommend everyone plan for? Yeah, you know, we're really, we've chose kind of the middle of the road climate models that, that exist um, out mm -hmm. there. But <laughs> yeah, you know, we really uh, try to pick that middle of the road. What was what was most likely to happen? Certainly, there's there's kind of the extreme scenarios on both ends where the likelihood of them actually happening is pretty low. So we tried to pick those scenarios that we thought were, were the, really the middle of the road, most likely to happen scenarios. So for, for example, the sea level rise, we're using uh, NOAA's intermediate to intermediate high uh, okay. scenarios kind of for our, our projections. Yeah, that's helpful to hear. I, you know, I know local municipalities have mostly taken that same approach, intermediate to intermediate high. You said over 100 organizations and agencies help. And, you know, I know that when Office of Resilience was created and this plan was being created, everybody in the world wanted to contribute in some way or another, which is fantastic, right? Like there's a lot of good work going on out there, but that um, it's also hard to maybe manage expectations. And there's a lot of data out there from different sources. And I, how do you, you know, how did y'all kind of manage that? I know you said you didn't go for a consensus, but maybe, maybe moving forward too, like how are you going to manage all the good work that's going on out there um, without it being just kind of a lot of noise? Yeah. You know, really the first set of recommendations in the plan talk about data coordination. We have a lot of data in the state that we certainly have some gaps that we need to fill, but there's a lot of data that's out there. 
and one of the things we noticed as we were putting together the plan was was there's no real central repository for data statewide and and we we've been working on that we got some funding in the last state budget to begin a project to to study is there a way to create kind of an inventory of the state data sets that exist uh, and not just flooding data sets right resilience really touches it's that interaction of the natural environment and the the human environment and the social system so we also need to capture all that all that other information that maybe exists in like department of social services or or other agencies like that. So uh, we're working with the South Carolina Department of Administration to kind of scope this out to try to build kind of a catalog for what what data exists that's housed at the state um, so we can manage our own data. And then as far as trying to touch other data sources, we feel like you can never have too many data sources. I usually say in my presentations that uh, every model is wrong, but some are useful. And, and what we try to do here at the Office of Resilience is, is we try to pick out the useful parts of each different data model, You know, whether that's I'm looking at Nature Conservancy's model or Audubon's model or looking at, you know, DOT's models, but how do they all kind of interact? And we can, can we find those common common areas, common ground where they all kind of agree so we get a, a better picture for where we're moving? So you're right. There's a lot of kind of herding cats. That's what uh, I kind of think of my job is sometimes. It's mm-hmm. just trying to capture what everybody's doing. It's a relatively new field. So I think it's still developing and, and figuring out how that structure is going to look long-term statewide, I think is evolving. But, mm-hmm. you know, certainly I think having a centralized office, as we talked about before, allows us to kind of be that focal point to, to act as that coordinating body. That makes sense. And and I've really appreciated, you know, had a lot of interactions with y'all. And as the office has formed and been growing, y'all have been very open to listening to people and, you know, hearing people and learning what is going on around the state. And I think that that's been much appreciated. You didn't just come in and put your flag in the ground and say, we're the office of resilience and this is what we're doing. So I think everyone has appreciated that. The plan focuses mainly on flooding, right? This first iteration of the plan, and that was a conscious decision. You mentioned the many floods we've experienced in the past, gosh, eight or so years now, but we know resilience is a broader term. So are are there plans to expand the focus of that, um, or do you think flooding is going to remain the main focus? Yeah, the, the legislation that set up our office was pretty clear that we needed to focus on flooding for the for the first version of this plan. But certainly we recognize there are other hazards that are out there. Plan does include a chapter that takes kind of a, a quick look uh, at other hazards that exist. A lot of them interact, right? So uh, my previous roles uh, in state government were really dealing with water shortages. So I was more yeah. on the drought side of things. But a lot of the things you do policy-wise that help you for floods also help you for drought. So flooding is actually a good mechanism to kind of look at all your problems at, at once. So the answer to your question is yes, we, we will be expanding that. Um, I think our next um, kind of focus will, will likely be on uh, drought and heat as future hazards, but certainly there's other ones. Largest earthquake on the East Coast to ever happen happened in Charleston. So uh, we got to be mindful of that. We also have other risks that our state faces. So it, it's really creating that mindset to understand what are what are your risks both now and in the future and how does that risk change and certainly we face a lot of different hazards in this state yeah you spoke of drought and, and water quantity in your best position and some of the listeners of our podcast may also be familiar that the state is doing state water planning right now in different watersheds so is there any overlap between scores plan and and the water planning process and how does that all fit together yeah, we're, we're trying to stay as coordinated as we can with DNR, who's currently in charge of that, that effort with the state water planning. I believe that's shifting over to the new Department of Environmental Services mm-hmm. um, at the start of the next fiscal year. But 
Yeah, certainly I, I used to work in both of those groups for different state agencies. So very familiar with what's going on over there. Uh, there's certainly overlap. Um, I think our focuses are a little bit different. You know, the, the state water plan is, is really more focused on uh, water availability during kind of normal times, right? Like so it may be a dry period, but we're not talking about extreme drought. When we start talking about extreme drought, that's where the, the, the drought act kicks in. And there's some different powers that go to the governor drought committee. So, so we may have some recommendations for, for how that could shift policy recommendations. But certainly when we're talking about you know, water availability, I think you know, there's a lot of good work that's going into that state water plan, a lot of good science that's going into that state water plan. And we'll, we'll certainly be pulling as much of that as possible when we're talking about you know, the drought side of things. We don't, want to, mm-hmm. we don't want to duplicate efforts. Um, that's sure. been a big push for our office is to make sure we're being efficient. And if somebody's already working in a space and doing a good job, you know, we'll, we'll just kind of try to build upon that um, and highlight those efforts and really kind of bring them to the top. So what are the next steps? The plan is done. Now you move into implementation, right? So what does that look like? Well, yeah, first, first the plan is is never done, right? <laughs> so, uh, we're continuously updating the plan. Uh, we're really trying to take an adaptive management approach here where as new data comes in, we're, we want to be flexible and adjust. But the next steps are really, uh, we're going to be focused more on getting to the local watershed level. Uh, we're in the process now of hiring some watershed coordinators. And their job is really going to be to, to interact with local levels of government, local communities, to help them develop their own resilience elements for their comprehensive plans and other planning efforts. A lot of the activities that have to happen to build resilience have to happen at the local level. So we really want to build up that local capacity to develop resilience, but we also want to make sure we're thinking beyond political boundaries. And that's why we're, we're thinking at this of the watershed scale. We don't want one community solution to be just to move the water downstream really fast that causes a problem to the community downstream. So really trying to get all these different communities and political subdivisions kind of coordinated for how they're going to develop resilience. Because we think we can get, then identify policies and projects that we could seek additional funding for. Uh, there's a lot of federal dollars out there right now to implement stuff, but we need to have those kind of developed to some level to go after those federal dollars. And we think that's going to be a real asset with having these watershed-based planning efforts uh, that will start to identify projects that we can then seek you know, federal dollars to, to implement. Are you starting somewhere? Is there a specific watershed you're starting in? Yeah, we, we received a grant from uh, NIFWIF. National Fish and Wildlife Foundation to pilot this in the Saucahatchee Basin. So that'll be the first one that gets kicked off. Still finalizing that grant agreement, but that'll that'll be kicked off here in the next month or two. But we we are also utilizing the, the state reserve fund to kick this off for the rest of the watersheds as well. So we're all we'll all be kind of starting up at the same time. Mm-hmm. But that Saucahatchee one will be the kind of the pilot for for how we're going to move forward with this project. Yeah, that'll be great. Build that throughout all the watersheds. As you mentioned, water's flowing. There's no jurisdictional boundaries. And um, other states have done some watershed level planning. And I think it's really successful. And so excited to to hear that South Carolina is moving in that direction as well. So you mentioned that a lot of the actions take place at the local level, right? Local government level. So first, tell me about what are some of the some of the specific maybe policy recommendations coming out of the plan that would be at the state level? And then talk a little bit more about how that would come down to the local level. Yes, from the state level, you know, the policy recommendations, one of the one of the big ones we we focused on is recognizing the the beneficial use of our natural systems for flood protection. So, we're focused heavily on on conservation and part of that's identifying the the benefit of wetlands to our systems and how they offer us flood protection and and with the recent Supreme Court decision, a large portion of the wetlands in South Carolina no longer have federal protection. So, uh, one of the big recommendations in the plan is that we think the state needs to take a look at 
do we need to develop some state level recommendations to protect these isolated wetlands that offer real flood protection for us downstream? We have a lot of folks that live downstream of, of these wetland areas. And if, if we modify them too much, we, we're, we're likely to be causing ourselves problems. So that's probably one of the bigger policy recommendations at the state level. Uh, and then really our policy recommendations at the moving towards more the more legal level are really getting these resilience concepts incorporated into local land planning, um, local comprehensive planning, and, and making sure those plans are all coordinated. Again, there's a lot of good planning effort that's already been going on statewide, but it's been some of it's been a little bit disjointed. Um, where maybe like the, the zoning plan doesn't match the land use plan uh, at local mm-hmm. community levels. And one thing we want to do is really develop some, some best management practices for how communities can get all those planning efforts tied together so they're, they're more likely to be implemented. Yeah. And, and you mentioned it, but just to really clarify it for our listeners within this act that created the Office of Resilience, it also requires local governments to add a resilience element to their comprehensive plan. Is that correct? That's correct. There's the new requirement that it be in there, but there's not so much information provided in the statute for for what that looks like. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's going to be look different for every community. Certainly a coastal community is likely to have a very different resilience element than maybe a community in our upstate. So what we want to do is make sure the communities have the tools and have data and information that they need to develop those elements in their plan. Yeah, you know, I think that is definitely a benefit of having the Office of Resilience. Again, that kind of focal point and framework at the state level to provide those resources for the local governments. I mean, there obviously are some counties and and cities that have developed resilience elements prior to this legislation, but having that that framework and guiding principles or best practices, like you said, I'm sure is going to be very helpful. Well, you mentioned wetlands. I will give a little fact or plug for a study that that the Nature Conservancy recently completed where we looked at um, floodplains upriver of of communities. And um, if we take away those floodplains completely, it increases the flooding like two feet in those communities. It essentially makes a five-year storm turn into a 200-year storm, which is like Hurricane Florence, essentially. So, you know, we really wanted to be able to quantify exactly what you talked about. If you take away those wetlands and those floodplains, what's happening to those communities. So yeah, it's encouraging to hear Office of Resilience recognizing the value of wetlands and floodplains and, um, you know, working to protect those now that some of them have lost protections. And I've been encouraged with Office of Resilience, just its its interest in nature-based solutions and conserving, you know, nature and the land that that we do have in the in the state. Can you build on that a little bit more? You know, how else is SCORE integrating nature, nature-based solutions into its work? Yeah, one of the things we did as part of the planning process is we really wanted to identify those areas statewide that we think are important for flood protection. And so we went through kind of a mapping exercise uh, and we developed a series of maps for each watershed statewide uh, that, that really says, all right, what are those areas that the state should really consider for conservation that reduce our flood risk? And so uh, we have these maps as part of the plan, attached to the plan. You know, really it's it's looking at what are our current flood hazard areas, and that includes FEMA flood hazard areas, but also areas that were identified through a, a nonprofit we worked with, the First Street Foundation. It includes uh, areas for marsh migration identified by NOAA, our current wetlands, uh, wetlands inventory, but then also looking at our soils data and really identifying those high quality infiltration areas where water is allowed to to move into the uh, groundwater system and take the slower path uh, out of the system. So those maps exist and we we put those up. We're we're partnering with Conservation Bank, South Carolina Department of Natural Resources, PRT um, and Forestry uh, to really kind of 
work at coordinating our, our efforts for conservation statewide uh, to really maximize the, the impact the state can have on conservation. Because a lot of these areas of priority overlap. If you look at our priority mapping and you look at conservation banks priority mapping, uh, there's a very high percentage of overlap. A lot of these areas serve multiple purposes. So they offer us flood protection, but they also offer benefits to wildlife and habitat and ecosystems. So as many ways as we can quantify the benefits uh, these areas possess, I think that really opens up the our ability to put them under conservation. And then are there recommendations in the plan for more local scale, site scale, nature-based solutions? Yeah, we certainly are encouraging communities to look at you know green infrastructure projects where possible to, to look at conservation when appropriate. One of the tools we're working on currently is, is a very site-specific tool where if you're interested in a particular facility, say you're one of our industrial partners that we have that, that's located in the state and, and you want to know, you know what areas currently exist that offer your facility some flood protection where you'd be able to go in and drop a pin on a map. The math happens in the background and it produce a very localized map for you to say for your facility, these are the best areas that you would benefit from for putting under conservation. We're hopeful that pushing that message will help mobilize some private dollars into the conservation world as well and, and get some of these um, you know, important people that, are, that exist in our state from an economic standpoint to really start to invest a lot in conservation to help protect their facilities, but also the communities at large. And, you know, there's a lot of movement for that and a lot of interest in at least large corporations, you know, that now have sustainability goals and ESGs and all those things. I think there's opportunity to marry those goals that they have, you know, with nature-based solutions or conservation or our interests so that they can check their boxes essentially and, and we can check ours as well. We've seen several organizations or, you know, big corporations investing in South Carolina. And yeah, I think if we uh, offer more opportunities for that, right, then then they'll come and they'll invest in it. Yeah. I mean, people want to come to South Carolina for the quality of life. You know, we're a beautiful state. Uh, we still have a, a large portion of our natural resources. And as much as we can develop smarter, um, I think the better off we'll all be it's because the Office of Resilience, we're, we're conservation minded, but we're not a conservation agency, right? We're, right. We're, we think conservation is a, is a bigger part of how South Carolina needs to develop overall resilience, and that includes economic resilience. So we think by pairing our conservation ethic with you know our, our, our desire to grow and, and evolve as a state, we can really kind of get the best of both worlds. Uh, it doesn't have to be either or. We just have to be a little bit smarter. Yeah, you know, there's opportunities both for, we understand, you know, big plants need to be built, right? So there's going to be some impact on the environment. So there's those mitigation opportunities offsite, you know, to restore forests and streams. But I think there's a big opportunity as well for developing more smartly on on that land, right? Where those where those plants are going. And that's where some of those more site-specific opportunities can come in. And I personally would love to see more of that when they're coming here and building. So you mentioned that it used to be the Disaster Recovery Office, and I know there's still kind of a branch that is getting the federal funding to repair homes. And is that still going on? Is there still funding happening and repairing homes from those floods years ago? Yeah. So we have received three different HUD grants to repair or replace homes. Uh, one for the 2015 storm, that one was $126 million. That one has been closed out. So that, that project's been closed out. We repaired or replaced uh, over 1,800 homes with that grant. We had the Hurricane Matthew grant that was $95 million. We completed, repaired, or replaced over 1,100 homes as part of that grant. And we're currently working towards finishing out the Hurricane Florence, which was a $72 million grant. We're currently at about 420 homes completed in that project. 
targeting just under 500, but that grant will be closed out on time as well. It's an important thing for our office because HUD grants, these HUD CDBG DR grants are, are very rarely closed on time. Hmm. Um, but we've managed to close two out of our three already. We'll close our third one on time. You have six years to from the time you get the money to spend the money and get it uh, out the door. So we've closed all our grants on time. Uh, we're very proud of that fact because there's a lot of other states that are struggling to get that money out to the communities that need it the most. So mm. we're, we're very proud of that fact that we spend it on time and we've spent it 100% to low to moderate income folks that, that need it the most. That's wonderful. Tell me how that process works a little bit. I'm just curious, you know, Disaster Recovery Office or now SCORE have to go out and, you know, find homeowners that are interested in this. Is there an application process? How do you reach those people that are, you know, in the most need? Yeah, intake all of these is closed just to be clear but uh yeah that, that was a program we have a, we have an implementation uh, vendor uh, that helps us with that uh, but yeah going out to the communities really building trust in the communities to understand what the program is and then and then doing some intake doing damage assessments on the homes and then kind of prioritizing the homes based on you know the applicants vulnerability and economic status and then the shape of the home so uh, there's a ranking system that's involved before these are implemented, there's, there's always more need than there are resources. So uh, we're very proud of the the number of homes we've prepared to replace, but there were certainly a, a, a much larger number of homes that that needed help that we were just not able to serve because of a lack of uh, resources. So it's a really rewarding process to see the changes that that happen for these for these homeowners. If, if you come into our office, our walls are lined with pictures of before and after of those homes, and you can really see yeah. that some of these folks were really living in, in really dire circumstances before we were able to come in and help them. Yeah, I was going to bring up those pictures. It's definitely impactful to walk into your office and see that. So that's the, and you said the acronym, which we'll put these all in the show notes so people knows, know what they are, but Community Development Block Grant Disaster Recovery, right? Funds from HUD, which is Housing and Urban Development. Then there's also CDBG Mitigation Funds, which is a fairly new pot of federal funding. Tell me a little bit about that one. Yeah, we've received $162 million from HUD for our CDBG MIT program. And I always get that acronym tongue-tied as well. But uh, that was really for a kind of a 17-county area, uh, largely in the PD um, and coastal regions of the state. And that's as a result of them being hit by multiple disasters. So that, that funding is being used to kind of do four different things, infrastructure projects. Uh, they can be green or gray infrastructure plans and studies for communities so they can understand why they're having issues from flooding. We're doing some voluntary buyouts uh, to get people out of harm's way um, and then return those areas to green space because the water wants to go where the water wants to go. So if we can get people out of harm's way, that's helpful. And then there was a there was a portion that was set aside to be that non-federal match share for local communities. So if they were going after some other federal dollars, we could match it with, with these HUD dollars. HUD has shifted away from that. So my understanding, there's not going to be any more mitigation mm -hmm. grants. There's going to okay. be a mitigation add-on to future DR grants. So okay. for future DR grants that, that the state may would receive, there would be a, a percentage that's added on to do mitigation projects. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, that match component is huge. For, for listeners that don't know, oftentimes with federal funds, there's a local match required. And oftentimes that's like 25%, which, you know, for a small community is a huge lift. So being able to utilize these match funds, I know has really helped a lot of communities. Yeah, absolutely. And the plans and studies money as well. You mentioned before, you know, sometimes you, you need to have your projects to a certain point before you can find funding for them, but there's so many just plans and studies that, that we need to do before we can do that. So having the funding for that is critical too. So then also SCORE received 
ARPA funding, another acronym. We live in the world of acronyms. And I know that that, uh, a portion of that at least could be used for green infrastructure. And so tell me a little bit about that one. Yeah. So we received some funding from the state from, from ARPA funds. A portion of that money was set aside to do infrastructure projects, kind of mirroring our, our mitigation, HUD mitigation projects. But that was a statewide program. So we were able to take applications statewide for mitigation projects. Those are in the process now. Award notifications have been put out. I think they're on our website. But those projects are kind of done. And then a portion of that money has kind of been set aside and to, to help with the USS Yorktown uh, remediation. Those aren't aware. The USS Yorktown is, uh, was gifted to the state by the U.S. Navy, but the Navy failed to take their oil <laughs> and fuel <laughs> with them. So that's been sitting in the Yorktown for quite some time. And um, mm. it's an aging ship. So we need to get those out just to, to kind of remove that hazard uh, yeah. statewide. So that's an ongoing project we're working on with those ARPA dollars as well. Okay. Yeah, I know. I'm testing you here because I know you don't run these programs within SCORE. Um, (laughs) But do you, off the top of your head, know of any specific green infrastructure projects that those funds are are funding? Uh, Off the top of my head, I couldn't name one. I I do know that that was part of the scoring criteria for those projects from the ARPA dollars was how much of the project was nature-based or or green project. So, But I, I do believe that there were many of the projects that were awarded did have a green component to them. That's great. I know I'm keeping you on your toes here, testing you, but (laughs) (laughs) well, I would love to ask you, there's money coming to score, but maybe this is more of a personal question, but if you had a billion dollars at your disposal, how would you use it to support nature? My answer is really like a billion dollars isn't enough. There's so much need out there. You know, a billion dollars would, would, would help certainly, but uh, it it would kind of just be a starting point. But but I really do believe that you know, we have an opportunity for South Carolina. We're a growing state. We have a lot of people moving here, but we're still you know, relatively rural. We still have an opportunity to kind of preserve those, those areas of the state that we think are important. And I really think focusing on, you know, on connectivity, um, whether that's through connectivity of the watersheds or, or, or landscapes, but um, as much as we could put uh, those dollars into putting that land under under conservation and really thinking about how those corridors are built, you know, to help help with flood protection, but also help with wildlife and species and really maintaining those ecosystems uh, that define what South Carolina is. Our internal mascot for the resilience planning team is the gopher tortoise. And I think about the gopher tortoise all the time because it modifies its habitat, but it also happens to live in very good infiltration areas for, for mm-hmm. water. Um, and so if, if, we, if we protect gopher tortoise habitat, we're also protecting for flood runoff and we're protecting for drought conditions because those areas allow for recharge of our aquifers. So really just, you know, investing those dollars and making sure the natural systems function the way they should, I think would be the best use of that money. That's great. You said you're a kayaking instructor and I want to hear more about that. Where do you, where do you do that? Yeah, I, I, I work with a nonprofit here in, in Columbia. We teach whitewater kayaking here on the Saluda River, right downtown uh, next to the uh, Riverbank Zoo. That's great. I guess I don't picture whitewater rafting in uh, or kayaking in, in Colombia, but I guess there's a, a strong enough community there for yeah, it. So it's, it's referred in the kayaking community. I think we've been referred to as a curiously strong kayaking community uh, here in Colombia. But okay. the old uh, the old mill there at that at that location um, when it was demolished has has led to some being rapids right there. So uh, we actually have a really high quality rapid and uh, right in the center of town. In Colombia, you know, it can be up to up to class four stuff if it if the water's right. But it's a great training ground for kayaking. And 
I've had this conversation with before with folks. If, if you really want to connect somebody with how a watershed works, you, you get them on the water because you start to realize how, you know, how changes to the environment impact that, that system. You know, if we're in downtown Columbia, it's, it's dam controlled. So we don't have a, a lot of impact, but if we're, if we're paddling up in the, up in the mountains of North Carolina or South Carolina, the upstate, how that rain falls and moves, you can definitely tell. If you're, in a, if you're in a river and you see tons of sediment all of a sudden that you had not maybe seen before, usually you can go back and track it to some bad land use practices or some mm-hmm. bad uh, management practices. So it really does connect people with the landscape. And I, I think it makes people really appreciate all those natural benefits that, that nature offers us for quality of life. And I love to hear that you know you can get out even in downtown Columbia and, and experience something like that and be able to take that time and get back into nature a little bit. I know you spend a lot of time behind your desk like I do, so it's nice to be able to do that when we can. You know, for those that aren't familiar with with the Saluda, uh, it's a real example for how you can make positive changes to a, to a system. There used to be a lot of sewage discharges that happened in that part of the Saluda through efforts that that's kind of been largely removed. You know, we see that the water quality is good. There's a trout fishery because of the water so cold uh, that they're able to maintain mm-hmm. in that, uh, that section of the river, but you go out there any day and, and have great blue herons flying by, you know, lots of, lots of fishing and going on around you. It's just a great place to be, especially when you consider it's right in the middle of town. Just a reminder that nature is resilient, right? And it will continue to persist if, if we allow it to some sense. So we need to keep working towards that. Well, what is something that we can all do to positively impact our environment? I think one thing we could all do is, is just be more aware of, of what we're doing. Uh, and, and one thing I've been thinking about with this is I'd just like to recommend that everybody carry around all the garbage they create for one day. So just pick any day and just say, I'm not going to throw anything in a trash can. I'm, everything I create, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carry with me so I get a real sense for, for the resources I use during any given day. And I think just doing that gives you an appreciation for how we're all guilty of, of kind of using resources without thinking about them. And if we can just be more conscious about how we're using our resources, I think that would that would benefit us long term from a nature standpoint. I love that. I'm going to do that with my kids this weekend. It would be an interesting exercise for them and me. And Alex, what gives you hope for the future? I've been in state government for over 20 years. And I'll, I have to say, I think we've entered an era of collaboration within state government that I haven't seen before. We've got a bunch of different agencies really trying to work together cohesively, uh, especially when we're talking about conservation, but also working well with outside groups, um, you know, working well with uh, our nonprofit community, working well with our business community, recognizing that we all have varied goals, but we also have a lot of shared interest and, and focusing on that shared interest, I think is going to allow us to, to make some strides forward as a state. And I'm, I'm real encouraged for the collaboration that I see uh, at the state. Well, I am too. And um, I really appreciate the Office of Resilience and the work that you and your team have put into, you know, the resilience plan and all the work that is happening from that and will happen moving forward. So thank you, Alex, for taking the time to talk with me today and for all the work that you do for the state. It was a pleasure, Liz. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in. Conversing with Nature is a podcast of the Nature-Based Exchange and is supported by funding from Honda. To learn more, visit our website at www.naturebasedexchange.org. I'll be back next time with another guest so we can continue learning from nature.
Until then, go make some memories outside. Ooh.